This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Marion Turner, who is the author of The Wife of Bath, a biography. Marion, thanks for being here with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So you have written a biography of The Wife of Bath. So can you talk a little bit about why you decided to write this, why you decided to put this together? Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, the title itself is a little bit counterintuitive because it's a biography of a fictional character. And we wouldn't usually think of a fictional character as having the kind of life that merits a a biography. And for me, I think I felt that writing a biography of this fictional medieval woman was really a way for me to write the lives of many, many women. So it seems like a very focused topic, but it's actually a topic that then became very expansive and allowed me to tell a lot of stories because I use the first half of the book really to weave the story of this literary character alongside many stories of real medieval women as well as fictional medieval women. So to think about these lives that have have very much been been lost to time and that there were so many really wonderful women whose voices haven't been heard, whose stories we don't don't know about. And I think I think people will like to hear those stories. Um, and I suppose the other thing that I that I found very just fun and experimental about writing about this literary character was that it enabled me to go right across time because this is a character that has had so much influence. And so, you know, usually I write books about the 14th century and a big chunk of this book is about the 14th century, but it also goes right the way up to 2021 because The Wife of Bath has had this extraordinary influence on literature across time. And so the book finishes with Zadie Smith's play. So it allowed me also to think about women and gender across 650 years. And I found that enormously productive and and fun. And I hope the readers will find it all fun too. So for those who, um, well, I don't know if, some people might not be aware, um, but just for folks who either are not aware or have read Canterbury Tales, maybe not very recently, can you sort of te- give a little sort of background of um, Allison and and why and, and Chaucer's work and why this was such why she's such an important character to even examine in a book length work? Absolutely. So. In the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer's most famous poem, he has a group of pilgrims come together in the Tabard Inn in Southwark in London, um, and they go on pilgrimage together and tell stories. Now, most of these characters, the pilgrim characters, are men. There are three women who tell stories. Two of those women are nuns, and then there is the wife of birth. So she is the only secular woman, the only non-nun 
on the pilgrimage. Um, and she also gives us more of her inner life than any of the other pilgrims, than any of the male pilgrims as well. She has a far longer prologue, so section in which she talks about her own subjectivity, her own life. So we get an unparalleled insight into her. She's developed as a character much more than any of Chaucer's other characters. And really Chaucer is is an innovator in terms of what he does with literary character. And he develops the idea of a of a, a kind of deeper literary character going beyond the more two-dimensional characters. He does that with the wife of Bath. So she's really interesting in terms of literary experiment, but also, of course, extremely interesting as a female character. Because before Chaucer invented the wife of Bath, there were not what I would call ordinary women in English literature. Ordinary women did not exist, did not have a voice in English literature. And by that, I mean that when we look at texts, there's a huge range of texts being written in English at this time. But what are the women like? Well, we have princesses, we have queens, we have damsels in distress, we have religious women. We also have prostitutes, whores, boards, witches, old crones, those kinds of women. We don't have women like the wife of Bath. So she's a middle-aged woman who's had a working life, who's been married five times, who gossips, has friends, drinks too much, makes mistakes. Um, I mean, there's probably many things here that many of us can identify with, though, you know, not the married five times. Um, but, But she's... So she's ordinary in that she is of an ordinary social background. She's sexually active. She's working. She's also, of course, absolutely extraordinary. So there's a there's a contradiction in saying she's ordinary because she's also extraordinarily um, extraordinary in her in her excess. You know, she talks so much. She gets married so much. She has so much sex. She's outrageous in so many ways, um, and she's extraordinary simply because the ordinary had not been represented before. So you have this character and um, you've divided this book. You sort of have sort of situated her in the literary sense, but in the first part of the book, you also situate her in um, the other women of the time. And like you said, some of the women that we have um, forgotten about or not even learned about. And so can you, can we, let's talk a little bit about that because I have to say, I loved your book, but I found like that beginning part, the first part really fascinating um, because there are so many women and, and so many discussions about how women sort of live during that time period that we often don't talk about or think about. Um, and so you start with um, thinking about sort of working women. And so can you talk a little bit about that working women during that time and, and sort of who she represented during that time? Absolutely. So people often assume that women in the 14th century didn't have jobs, that the idea of working women is a much more more recent idea. But but that's not right at all. Um, you know, women have always worked. And in the Middle Ages, you know, many women had jobs and women of all different social levels worked. So at the very top of the hierarchy, many very rich women were expected to be able to run estates and do the accounts and do business. And if their husbands died, they would be in charge of enormous land holdings and inheritances. And, you know, they were not expected to hand the reins over to a male relative. And then at the you know, lower end of the spectrum, many women went into service. They were maids. Um, and in between, you have, you, know, you have female apprentices. Lots of women worked in the cloth trades who were making, making clothes. As the wife of Barney tells us that she's, she's worked in the cloth trade. Um, 
making clothes, silk women, those kinds of, of jobs, and also in, in the victualling trade, so food and drink. You know, women were often brewers, for example. But you also find evidence of women doing all kinds of things. You know, I, I, as you know, I talk in the book about a woman who owned a ship, a woman who ran a skinning business, um, making furs after her after her husband died. There's a female blacksmith, female scribes, female artists and illuminators. So there are some women who clearly follow either followed their talents or followed economic necessity into a whole range of quite, quite unusual jobs. But there's some roles that you know we find many women in, and I think that th- there's a whole range of things about this that that are interesting. So after the Black Death, um, which you know, happened in England in um, 1348, 49. So when Chaucer was about six years old, this terrible pandemic hit and it wiped out huge amounts of the population. People who survived then had more opportunities, you know, so they were needed to do the job. So more people entered the workforce, more women moved to cities, there were more opportunities for them. And women at this time did benefit from good inheritance laws in England. They could keep their money. They were motivated to work. And I think that, you know, once I started looking into into these, these women, I think that it really encourages us to to think about our own preconceptions because when you when you immediately hear about lots of women who are maids for example I mean most of us think well that's not desirable you know very few people grow up thinking I want to be a servant um and many women were servants at this time but actually this was a role that gave them opportunities because in many other countries at that time women didn't have the opportunity to go out and earn a salary. They were expected to do that kind of service work for free, you know, in their own household, that in a house, the daughters, the daughters-in-law, the unmarried sisters, the wives, they would be the people who were doing all that work. They didn't have any, any choices. But actually, when women were encouraged into service, they could earn a salary, they could leave their father's house, you know, crucially. And many of these women then were able to save money and then they had more control over their sexual destiny. And that's absolutely crucial. If you've got control over your economic destiny, you're much more likely to have control over your sexual destiny. They could choose their, their husbands. They weren't being married off by their, by their fathers. They were also marrying later because they were working for a few years. And this was something that was um that was a crucial part of the, the kind of marriage pattern in, in England and also in the Netherlands at this time. In contrast, in Southern Europe, girls were marrying much younger usually. They were not going out into service so much. They didn't have as good inheritance rights. They were having a lot more children because they married younger. So they weren't able to contribute to the economy as much. So in fact, you know, many people have talked about the late 14th and 15th centuries in in England and in Northwest Europe as a golden age for women. And I really, really don't want to idealise it. Of course, this was a time when women did not have the vote, did not have proper medical care. You know, this was not a time in which I would want to be a woman. But it also was not nearly as bad as most people assume. They were protected by the law in various ways. And many women just managed to have really interesting lives to take risks to do things that no one expects medieval women to do and I think that although the wife of Bath is this extreme character she's based on literary sources as well as historical ones she also only makes sense in this post-plague world where women could inherit they could get married lots of times and keep their money they could work you know all these things that the wife of Bath does just wouldn't make sense in most parts of the world at that time. But they make sense in England, although they are extreme and, and excessive and she is a she's not supposed to be real. But nonetheless, she, she makes sense in this very interesting moment for medieval women.
Yeah, and you mentioned it, but I thought one of the fascinating things in this um, part, in this section, was talking about those marriage laws and and how often, like you said, that women could be married um, later in life and they could keep their inheritance and what all that meant and how that kind of situates them in that space. Um. And, and, and so you have these w- women who are work. She represents sort of women who are working, women who are getting married multiple times, um, and also sort of women telling stories. So, so in this sort of part, this first part, you also talk about women as sort of storytellers and as wanderers. And I think those two sort of fit well together. So, can you talk a little bit about that as well, and how she um, represents these aspects of women during this time? Yeah, absolutely. So as you say, she's a storytelling woman and she's also a traveling, wandering woman. So as a storyteller, I mean, that's one of the most important aspects of her. Not only that she tells her own story and in fact tells two stories because her prologue is so long. So she tells this long story about her own life, about her marriages, about the fun that she's had and the things that she's done, but also about the domestic abuse that she's suffered. She tells us a lot about her memories, her past, her hopes for the future. And then she tells another story, again, a very serious story, um, which inverts what we expect in in romance stories. It's a story about rape, but also a story about redemption, about women working out how to to make a rapist think about what what he's done. And it's also a story about fairies and transformation. And it's a wonderful, wonderfully interesting story. But as well as telling those stories, she also interrogates the principle of female storytelling. So in one of the most important parts of her prologue, the wife of Bath says that women have not had the opportunity to tell their own stories. And she says, you know, all these terrible things are written about women. And she is haunted by this book, the Book of Wicked Wives, that her husband read obsessively, book about how awful women were. There were many books like this in the Middle Ages, and there are still many books like that today, of course. so she's haunted by that book and she says, well, these women have all these these women have been written about exclusively by men. Women have not had the chance to tell their own story. And she says if women had told their stories as men have in their oratories, they would have said many things about the wickedness of men. And then there's this famous line where she says, who painted the lion? Tell me who. And that's a reference to a fable. And in this fable, a man and a lion are looking at this picture in which the man is triumphant and brilliant and you know triumphs over the lion and the lion says well who painted that picture you know it was painted by a man so of course he sh- he's trying to depict men as wonderful rather than you know showing the lion maybe winning which might actually be more realistic um and 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 the wife bar turns this into a fable about gender you know saying well essentially if the pen has always been in in men's hands you know this is something that jane austen and virginia wolf and many women across time went on saying because these problems didn't didn't go away so she's very much foregrounds the issue of the importance of women being able to tell their stories in order to correct some of the bias of the canon and Chaucer creates the Wife of Bath at a moment when more women were writing and were making their voices heard. Of course, there have always been women writers, but we we find many more women writers writing in English in this era. So in the late 14th century and early 15th century, women such as Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp write or dictate their own works. In France, we have Christine de Pizan, a really 
very interesting French author writing very shortly after Chaucer. And she also writes precisely about the problems of women's voices not having been heard in the past in her book of the City of Ladies. Or again, she's so depressed by reading these terrible things about women all the time. And then these female allegory figures say to her, well, you've got to correct it. You've got to write some some books about um, from the female point of view. So we're getting emerging female writers increasingly at this time. One of the things that we see is that so many women writers, and I talk about Heloise, about Christine de Pizan, about Marjorie Kemp, these fascinating women writers were then crushed by editors, printers, who either changed the authors to men, as happened repeatedly to Christine de Pizan, or just cut the text to make it less radical, less interesting, as happened to to Marjorie Kemp. A very limited um, version of her text was was printed in the late 15th century and early 16th century, and the, the full text wasn't recovered until the 20th century. So women were kind of making their voices heard, but then kept being pushed back again. You know, they, and, and that's also something that we see happening to, to the wife of Bard's voice across time, as we as we might come to it in, in a while. But you also asked me about story, as well as about storytelling, about traveling. And the wife of Bath is a great traveler. She has traveled many times to Jerusalem and all over Europe. And although she has, again, seems to have traveled an excessive amount. It wasn't that excessive. You know, there were women at this time who traveled to the Holy Land, who traveled to Rome, who traveled to Santiago de Compostela in in Spain. Women were embarking on, on pilgrimage. They were going with groups of friends. They were sometimes transacting business in Italy. They were doing all kinds of, of, of interesting things. And, you know, one of my my favorite women from this book, though though I don't think she's someone that you'd want to meet on a, on a dark night necessarily, but one of my favorite women from this book is Marjorie Kemp's maid, who's had very little attention because, of course, Marjorie Kemp has it has been the focus of people's attention but in her book she she tells us a few times about her maid who travels around Europe and the Holy Land with her, but in fact abandons her employer, heads off, gets a better job, then gets another better job, and ends up, you know, really in a position of quite a lot of importance in Rome, dispensing charity to her former employer as she has the keys to the cellars of the English hospice in Rome and is the person in charge of of the wine and provisions there. So she's a great example of a woman who kind of pulls herself up by her bootstraps and uses both service. I was talking before about the opportunities that in fact the service could give and also travel to make this new life for herself. You know, she seizes her opportunities and, and betters her, betters herself, you know, gets into a, a far superior position a bit ruthlessly, but nonetheless, it's, it's kind of impressive, you know? <laughs> no, and, and the stories of like, not wanting to have anything to do with her um, former, you know, boss and, and all of these. So yeah, so this is this fascinating time. And, and like you said earlier, it probably isn't a time you'd want to be a woman, like as I was reading, and you talk some about the perils of travel for for women. But still, the extent to which um, traveling across Europe during this time is takes time, right? It's time consuming, it's dangerous. And what this meant and how many women were how women were actually doing this and participating in these spaces we don't often think about. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's there's so many interesting examples of the places women went. When you look at those kind of the guidebooks of, you know, how people were speaking to each other, what they were trying to do, you know, those those hilarious examples that I give where there are guidebooks that say, well, you've got to be really careful when you're traveling in this part of Spain because there the men like to give oral sex. And you're like, okay, something to look out for when traveling. I mean, they're just so bizarre. And again, what people often, they just don't expect to, to come across it in medieval travelogues. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, you, so you've got this, so you sort of situate her in this medieval time, but um, she doesn't disappear from literature, right? She becomes, um, and she continues to become someone who is returned to, who's talked about, um, whose story is even, <laughs> I teach English teachers, I teach future English teachers, and often if they're going to teach the Canterbury Tales, hers is one that's often like repeated if they're picking stories. Um, and so you bring us into sort of more um, all the way up to very modern time, but look and situate her in different spaces. So let's start with Shakespeare and the relationship between Chaucer and Shakespeare um, and the wife of Bath, because this is one that's looked at often. So could you talk a little bit about the Shakespeare influence and or influence yeah. on Shakespeare? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's well known that Shakespeare read Chaucer very carefully and we can find references to Chaucer in all of Shakespeare's plays um, pretty much. I think that people talk a lot more about his classical influences than they do the medieval influences, but they're very strong and he certainly um, was strongly influenced by Chaucer. There's two ways in which in which I, I think the wife of Bath was particularly influential on, on Shakespeare. And, that, and that's apart from there are times when there's you know, little quotes or linguistic echoes, but but two more substantial ways. So one is the influence of the wife of Bath on Falstaff. And this is something that other critics, particularly Harold Bloom, have, have written about, the, the idea that Falstaff's main um, kind of antecedent was the wife of Bath. You know, both of these characters, they're essentially Chaucer's favourite character and Shakespeare's favourite character. They're both characters that exceed their own texts you know they spill off into extra into other texts they pop up elsewhere they both seem to die at one point but are then resurrected you know their authors just couldn't leave them alone they both and then the the comparisons just multiply and multiply. They use the same biblical quotes. They talk very excessively. They they self-dramatize in ways that are knowing, that are bodily, that are very, very similar. And so these two characters are, who are both, I think, so memorable mainly because they are really vital characters, vital as in alive. You know, that their, their life seems to get be more than the text itself they seem to um to to spill over and that's part of their their excessive bodiless bodiliness their ex- excessive voice but then the second way in which i argue that the wife of bath was influential on shakespeare which i mean i find completely fascinating once i started thinking about the connections between the wife of bath's prologue and tale and the merry wives of windsor and i can't go into all the detail of the argument here but Look forward to chapter seven, readers, um, for the, for this. But the Merry Wives of Windsor is a very neglected Shakespeare play, and it's it's the only play that's set in kind of Shakespeare's contemporary England in a mercantile world. So very similar to the Wife of Bath's world. It's a world in which mercantile women end up on top, just like the Wife of Bath. It's a world in which mercantile women who are married and sexually active 
are middle-aged they are not however they're not whores you know I mean the wife of our source was a was an old whore she's not she's a multiply married woman who is sexually active but but respectable these women are like that as well and they are they, they talk about their their enjoyment of of a, a kind of witty sexual repartee and so on but also what we see in so, so those are things that connect the prologue to the play but the tale the wife bird's tale is also fundamentally connected to the play. So in both texts, we see fairies, a transformation in the woods. We see a knight being taught that women are not automatically sexually available to him and being taught a lesson. We see, crucially, middle-aged, middle-class, um, unimportant women being the ethical centres of these texts. Again, the comparisons really multiply. And I think that this is a really... Um, unexamined aspect of Shakespeare's work, how closely he was influenced by the wife of Bath in the construction of that play. Right. So you've got Shakespeare doing this work. You also talk a bit about how um, male writers sort of tried to silence, to mute um, the Alison and this work. And so can you talk about that as well, how um, people tried to um, sort of push back and stop some of the more radical elements of The Wife of Bath? Yeah, so we have ballads about The Wife of Bath that were written in the in the 17th century and the, the printers were put in prison and the ballads were burnt because people were so frightened of Alison's voice. When we get into the 18th century, um, Alexander Pope wrote, wrote a kind of, version kind of translation adaptation of the prologue but he cut hundreds of lines out he cut out all the bits where she's talking about her body her genitals her enjoyment of sex all that kind of thing so he made it he kind of cleaned it up um Dryden wrote a version of her tale but says in his prologue to the fables that he just doesn't dare to translate the prologue because it's too licentious so over and over again we see these examples of of male authors being obsessed with her, you know, fascinated by her, but also being made very, very anxious about her. So they they can't leave her alone, but they also want to to reduce her, to ridicule her, to, to cut her back. And we see that in in various kind of creative versions as well. So John Gay in the um, 18th century, and then um, an American called Percy Mackay in the 20th century, both wrote plays about the wife of Bath. And they're, they're very different plays, but they both essentially humiliate her and focus on kind of putting her in her place. You know, And both of them rewrote the plays, interestingly, again, in a they can't leave her alone. Um, but, you know, in, in Gay's play, in the the second version, it's a it's a comedy, as in a, a the idea of a comedy like Shakespeare's comedies, where everyone ends up married, but she's the one who doesn't doesn't get married. She's and she ends up on her own. She's the only one. She's punished in that way. Um, in McKay's play in the in the from the early twentieth century, you know she's absolutely humiliated. I mean, it's an amazingly interesting play involving all kinds of of cross dressing and. Um, and masquerading and so on. And she wants to marry Chaucer and she she has a whole plot to do that. But in the end, you know, the author Chaucer and the um and, and the royal family and lawyers all get together to trick her and force her into a marriage with the miller, because when authoritative men get together, they're always going to be able to put this unruly woman in her place. And that's the kind of thing we see happening over and over again in these adaptations of the wife of Bath. And so the things 
I mean, what, one thing that I think is really fascinating about so many adaptations is that when we today, many of us, when we read The Wife of Birth, Prologue and Tale, many of us think, wow, these issues, you know, domestic abuse, rape, the difficulty in getting your voice heard, these are issues which are still really important today. They've been important right across time. Um, we also might think, this is such a powerful, interesting voice. It's so funny. It's so alive. Those two things were not always the things that adapters were interested in. You know, across time, often they didn't want to talk about these serious issues about rape and domestic abuse. They wanted to present her as a kind of stereotype and then and then ridicule her in some ways. And they wanted to crush that funny voice and make her something much much simpler, much um, much easier to put into a certain kind of box. Um, but she always gets out of that box in the end. And and she has this influence. And one of the things you talk about is the influence and impact not only on British literature, right? But you have the uh, chapter Alison Abroad, right? And how she has impacted and influenced literature throughout the world. And so can you talk a little bit about her, her importance beyond British literature? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I really wish that um, everyone could open the book and look at some of the illustrations, um, because there are, there are some really interesting pictures. And I'm thinking of this I, I'm sure you, you'll remember Rebecca the, the 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 poster from communist Poland with this incredible image of the wife of Bart. So this is from 1970s Poland, where she's depicted as this you know this this recumbent, semi-naked, um, kind of pornographic figure, part of the earth with contemporary politicians dining off off her off her flesh. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. You think, wow, why did the wife of Bath have that kind of cultural resonance in 1976 in Poland? It's 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 amazing. Um, but to backtrack a bit, so so the wife of Bath kind of gets out of England in the 18th century, where she's multiply translated in France, but most notably by Voltaire. So the great French writer Voltaire bothers to translate The Wife of Bath's Tale, um, makes it into something completely different, absolutely takes away the idea of the woman as the ethical centre of the story, takes away the, the impact of the idea of the, the rapist knight, um, turns it into something quite different. And it is very, the gender politics of what Voltaire does, I, I think, are extraordinary. Um, and it's his version that then develops into a, a play that is performed all over Europe. So she hits... She hits um, Europe, you know, throughout the 18th century, and is, is very popular right across Europe, but also has has impact in in many other countries. Just a few years ago, there was a play about her in in Brazil, for example, which I you know really interesting. She's still got that kind of that kind of power. I already mentioned some of the American versions, um, so adaptations from early in the 20th century, and Chaucer has had a lot of influence. Um, in America for for many centuries. So there's lots of lots of examples in the book. I think one of the most important kind of non-English um, versions of the Wife of Bath or non-British versions of the Wife of Bath is um, Pasolini's film again from the 1970s. And many people's knowledge of Chaucer actually might come from um, Pier Paolo Pasolini's um, Iraconti de Canterbury, so the Canterbury Tales. And he makes the wife of Bath into a completely monstrous figure, into an, an abomination. Um, sex with her literally kills her husband, her fourth husband. Um, and I, th I think part of the message is that sex with uh, 
a middle-aged older woman is absolutely is disgusting is monstrous you know that that is there is a really dark misogyny in Pasolini's interpretation and when I was looking at all of these adaptations and interpretations across time um, and there were so many more than I was expecting to find you know I just kept thinking oh my goodness and James Joyce oh and Ted Hughes and another one and another one wow why can't anyone leave her alone but when I was looking at them and as I say finding so many I start with you know 15th century scribal adaptations that end up in in 2021 and you know often I think many of many people have an unexamined assumption that things improve as history moves on um and of course there are some ways in which that that is true but we also i'm sure if we just think about things that have happened in the last even five years we can also see that sometimes history seems to go backwards and when you're looking at i think gender across time it's not a story of a kind of constant progress and improvement and i would say that the most misogynist and disturbing um, versions of the wife of Bath have probably been 20th century ones. Um, there are some bad ones earlier as well, but I think the 20th century ones are probably the the very worst, the most kind of angry and um, kind of horrified by her her sexuality and and her body. Now, in recent decades, that's that's turned around a bit in the 21st century, but I think it is a really interesting reminder that. Yeah, we we have to be alert because the the march of history is not is not always in our favor. And and sort and on that, you end your last chapter sort of looks at um, black female writers and artists um, tackling and addressing this and and looking at this and sort of tackling some of the history, especially history in in England and London. And so, can you talk? about what you were finding in this very sort of more recent trend in this trend with these um, female writers finally returning and bringing bringing Allison's voice to their worlds. Yeah, of course. So I think that many of the most interesting current, sorry, many of the most recent um, writers about Alison, they are women and many of them are black women, interestingly. Um, and we're really seeing Alison's, the wife of Bard's voice, being reclaimed now. And so examples are, you know, Patience Agbagbi, who is a, a Nigerian British author, for example, who's written a version of all the Canterbury Tales, but the first one she did was The Wife of Bath, who became the wife of, of Baffa. Another example is Jean Binterbreeze, who, um, who who died recently, but was the, the first um, female dub poet. Um, and you can look on YouTube for her Wife of Bath in Brixton Market, where you see her reciting her version of The Wife of Bath um, in her dialect, walking through, the, through Brixton Market. And then Zadie Smith's very now, I think, very well known and acclaimed Wife of Wilsdon, but only premiered um, just over a year ago, so late 2021, um, which is a, a translation adaptation of the prologue and the tale, sticking very closely to Chaucer's text, but also bringing it right up to the present day. And I think that, you know, if you look at a text like that, so it's it's ostentatiously of the present moment, um, you know, references to so the Book of Wicked Wives is now books by people such as Jordan Peterson. Um, there are references to you know, Me Too, for example, and, and Beyonce and, and 
your very current figures. But she also is is sticking very closely to Chaucer's text, even to Chaucer's meter. It's in the iambic pentameter that that Chaucer himself invented. Um, so I think that one of the things that's going on there is that is that unlike some earlier authors, contemporary authors are indeed very interested in the, the relevance of these issues of rape, domestic abuse, women's voices, marginal voices. So this because it's even more important for women of color, their voices you know, do not get heard. It's harder for them to 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 carve out space in in the cultural environment. So the, the issues that the wife of Bath was talking about remain very relevant in in all kinds of ways. At the same time, you know, this is this is also a story about about the past. So it isn't about making this all all up to date, but you know, showing what's similar and what's and what's not the same. So the wife of Bath's tale, for instance, is set in the kind of mythical Arthurian past of, of Britain. Now, Zadie Smith's version is set in 18th century Jamaica um, amongst a freed slave, a free slave community. And, you know, I think that, you know, a, a key point that I get out of, of that is that all of these histories are relevant to, to all of us. So, and by us, I suppose here, I, I particularly mean, you know, people from, from my country. So if you are, if you're British, whatever your own background is, thinking about the history of Jamaica is as relevant as thinking about the Arthurian past. You know, we need to think about all those histories as part of our identity and and where our country came from. And that's something that I think is is really important to tie into the medieval past, which was itself you know, diverse. And you know, some people like to imagine that the medieval time was a time of cultural um, kind of homo- homogeneity, and that just could not be further from the truth. You know, Chaucer was a multilingual man living in a city that was full of immigrants. That you know, he worked in the customs trade. He saw ships come in every day, bringing spices, silks, fabrics from all over the world. You know, right over to the islands of of what we would call Indonesia today. Um, this was a, a global economy, and a, a well off man such as Chaucer, from a mercantile background, was absolutely aware of the importance of trade of interacting with other countries and cultures. He was very well traveled. So this sense of that that we I think it's really important to to recognize that just as our country now is diverse and as a country of of immigrants it, it always has been you know that that's not something new that's not something that's changing a a kind of medieval purity you know quite quite the contrary you know it's always been diverse and varied and indeed when we look at Chaucer's texts you know his his texts are Oh, he could only write his texts because he was reading texts in Italian, in French, in Latin, sometimes in Latin that had been translated from Arabic. You, you know, he, we are, our culture is always embedded in this in this broader world. And contemporary post-colonial writers or writers from the African diaspora who are engaging you know, so brilliantly with Chaucer are, are putting a, a new lens on those texts and I think reminding us of all the different ways that we might approach them. Right. And so 
uh, you, you know, you end with this and this sort of complexity and the importance of this complexity with Chaucer. And and do you see, so I'll ask you two final questions, but one, uh, and you don't talk about this in the text and you might not, have, but like, what do you see now? I mean, do you see something next for the wife of Bath? Do you, you know, like, what is the next direction or what is the, the importance? Like, why is this so important? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a great, a great question, a really interesting thing to to think about. So I think that why is why is she so important? I mean, I think that the fact that she remains so alive, she is something completely different in English literature. We just don't have any other characters like her who've had this kind of influence, this kind of reach. So many of our most interesting current authors are inspired by her inspired both to go back to that text and to create new texts. And I think this is a way in which, given that she is such a a character that inspires so many people, she's just a great a great way to engage people with with great literature and with the past you know, and to encourage creative responses as well as more traditional literary critical responses because she just um she she wakes something up in people you know you know people so many people have said to me she's the character that i remember you know i remember even if they don't know Chaucer very well or they only know a little bit about it they remember she 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 remains somewhere in their head and again you see her popping up in so many different different places in terms of what's next for her, well, I think one thing that's next for her is um, kind of computer game interactive versions of her. Um, I've co- I've recently been working on a kind of pilot um, AI chat. Um, a tabard in experience, which encourages school students to go into the world of the tabard in. They watch little dramatized bits and then they can talk to kind of smart, smart characters, including the wife of the wife of birth. And I think there might be all kinds of ways that we can use new technologies. And I think the wife of Bath and Chaucer would love that, you know, this kind of doing really new, innovative things to keep on bringing her to life It with the new opportunities that we have in the current world of, of AI and um, and computing technologies. You know, we, we have new opportunities and I think we need to not to shut our eyes to them, but to, to harness them. At the same time, of course, I want people to read actual texts as well. <laughs> Right. But I will say I love that idea of computer games and AI. Um, My son is a gamer and there are some games that he plays where he has learned a great deal, especially about medieval history, but histories through playing it through gaming. Right. And he's like, and I'll be like, why do you know that? And he's like, well, it happened in blah, 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 blah. Right. In this game. Right. So uh, and 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 so I think that that's super fascinating. (laughs) Absolutely. And it can really engage people with narrative. So, so you, this book is coming out um, January 17th. So it's coming out um, relatively soon. Um, My final question is always if there's anything that you knew you're working on or something with the book that will be happening during that time, something, anything you want to promote and put out there. Well, um, for anyone who's going to be in England next year, I'm going to be putting on an exhibition about Chaucer at the Bodleian Library, which is going to start in December 23 and run for a few months about Chaucer across time. So it ties in with some of the themes of this book, but also does other things. Um, and, I, and there's going to be a tie-in book with that with that exhibition. Um, I'm hoping to do quite a lot of, of promoting promoting the book over the next few months of course with um various radio appearances and festivals and so on I just I really love just 
getting to to talk to readers at those kinds of live events and you know what a pleasure to be able to do some live events again after after the last the last couple of years to actually to meet readers again is is just one of my absolute favorite things Again, Marion, thanks for talking with me. Marion Turner, who is the author of The Wife of Bath, a biography. Thanks for talking with me for New Books Network. Thanks so much, Rebecca.